a fox got into my uh, son-in-law's chicken coop while he and his family were away just over this last week on holidays. Uh, we're batching in a bungalow at the back of uh, my son-in-law and daughter's place uh, right near the chicken coop. So last Saturday, a guy by the... We didn't know anything about how um, the fox had got in and partly demolished a chook. Feathers everywhere. It was half dead in the chicken coop. So uh, last Saturday, a guy by the name of Josh turns up uh, with a shovel in his hand. And Adrian, our son-in-law, had heard about what had happened and he'd rung Josh and said to come around and deal with the situation. And his instructions from my son-in-law to Josh were, cut its head off. Um, so Josh is standing there at the door explaining to us what's happening with his instrument of execution in his hand, <laughs> the shovel. And his words to us were, I'm not looking forward to this. <laughs> it's funny... Uh, to end uh, even the life of a poor old chook um, just made me feel uncomfortable. I don't know what it is. Maybe I'm a wuss. I don't know. Uh, but I, I can't for the life of me. And we, we hear it almost every day on the news about how someone has murdered another person. I, I, I can't wrap my mind and my head around how a person could do it. But what I find even harder to understand is how can someone deliberately and in a premeditated fashion plan the murder of someone? What must be going on in their mind must be dark and evil and um, I just just don't comprehend it. But if I was to say to you this morning without any sense of drama that someone had in their mind deliberately and are deliberately premeditating to murder you what would your reaction be? Because I'm here to tell you this morning that is true and what we read and what we will read again in Genesis 3 this morning demonstrates that. Uh, what we read in Genesis 3, and if we can put Genesis 3 up for us, that would be great. What we read last week in Genesis 3 was the first murder in the Bible. Uh, the murder of Abel wasn't the first. The first was in Genesis 3 uh, where the serpent murders Adam and Eve. Now, am I being a little bit dramatic by describing this as a murder? Well, first of all, we know that the serpent was Satan because Revelation 12.9 says, The serpent of old, who is called the devil, and Satan, who deceives the world. So straight away we see that the serpent who tempted Adam and Eve uh, was Satan, um, who deceives the world, Revelation says. Secondly... How does Jesus describe this scene? And this is where we see the word murder used. John 8.44, Satan is described as the one 
who was a murderer from the beginning. So Jesus describes the events of what happened in Genesis 3 as a murder. And then I asked myself this question and I was lying in bed thinking about this um, not so long ago and I thought, what was the motivation for such a murder? As I said, I can't wrap my head around the whole thought of why someone would deliberately murder another person. And I asked myself this question, why didn't Satan send a demon to take out Adam and Eve? Or if necessary, to send a whole horde of demons to take out Adam and Eve? I almost get the feeling that Satan is saying to his demonic horde, step aside, I'm going to deal with this. Now I know that's poetic license but that's the vibe I get and when he comes he says in verse 4 to Eve you will not surely die and yet that's why he was there he was there to kill them and I thought now in this intensely violent act of slaying our first parents and we're not just talking about the ultimate physical death of Adam and Eve but we're talking about the possibility of an eternity in that dreadful place called hell that came into being why did Satan do this and I thought about creation itself and I thought about the mind boggling universe with the stars flying across them that we can see on a clear night. I thought about the glorious blue expanse of the sky which stretches from one horizon to the next. And, and I thought about the, the incredible snow-capped mountains uh, that stretch through various parts of this world of ours, sticking up spiked with the snow on them, a little bit like the back of an old relic dinosaur. And, and God made this. And then I, I was watching, um, oh, what's the name of that guy? Uh, yes, thank you so much, David Attenborough last night. And um, I, was, I was thinking about the tiger that God created. The tiger's an incredible animal, isn't it? So silently and fearlessly, Strolling through a jungle, God, variety in living things is amazing. From that tiger down to the amoeba, which we can't even see. And Genesis says it was good, 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 and finally it's very good. And the pinnacle of that creation walks in the Garden of Eden. The pinnacle because it is only contrary to what the evolutionists might feel, it is only humanity that is created in the image of God and Satan comes and he personally wants to murder our first parents. And I'm here to tell you this morning he has not changed.
And just as surely as we talked about last week, when the image of God was smashed in our first parents, so every single person sitting here made in the image of God is just as much a target of Satan. And he wants us dead in terms of our relationship with God and in terms of our final destiny. And it doesn't take much, as we've heard even this morning, it doesn't take much, just a cursory glance of scripture to see that uh, when the word of God is presented or lived, uh, that Satan will attack. Uh, you, you just look at Jesus' ministry and he's, he's casting demons out all the time. The start of his ministry, Satan has a, has a swing in him. Um, do, do you remember when he, he tells the story of, of, the, of the parable of the sower, that well-known story? Did you pick up that it says in terms of one of the seeds, and I think it's the seed that's scattered on the path. It says in Matthew 13, 19, when anyone hears the message about the kingdom, in other words, when evangelism is promoted, when the seed of God is going to be uh, presented, when you have your alpha course, my goodness, you need to be praying. Because the scripture says, when anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. Satan is the original abortionist. He does not want life to come when the seed is sown within the hearts of those amongst whom we live. And then you just look at Paul's missionary journey, his first missionary journey, good grief, you'd think he would have given up. Uh, he, he's sneaking out the back doors of some town because they, they plan to kill him. Um, he's abused and I think it's in Lystra if I remember rightly. He's taken and he's stoned and he's left for dead. Wherever he preached the gospel there was opposition. And that just wasn't from the human heart but was inspired by Satan himself of course. And then finally, in 1 Thessalonians 2.18, it's talking about Paul and he's, he's wanting to get to the church at Thessalonica and, and share with them. He says, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked the way. I don't think I'm telling you folk anything new here this morning, that when we want to sow the seed, we poke the devil in the eye and he will respond accordingly. Satan opposes evangelism. I've seen this again and again and again in my ministry. I remember many years ago, um, <clears throat> this was before I started YD, I was working with open, open air campaigners, and we were at Lake Tyres. You know where Lake Tyres is? It's just south, no, south or west or east, east, east of Lake's entrance. And uh, we were having an outreach program there. This is many years ago when you could show films and people would come out to watch a Christian film. Anyway, we showed a film and then uh, one of the guys was preaching. An open air campaigner, some of you may or may not remember this, used a sketchboard. 
and on top of the sketchboard, because it was a night program, they had a fluoro light mounted, and so that as we shared the gospel and painted on the uh, sketchboard, uh, people would listen. And I remember um, there were about 150 there in this rough outdoor setting at the Lake Dyers Caravan Park. And they were listening. They were right on the edge of their seat. And the staff member who was preaching was about to call him to commitment. And right at that moment, a possum (laughs) ran the length of the roof, dropped down from the roof onto the top of the light of the sketchboard (laughs) and sat there while this guy was trying to call people to commitment. Is that an accident? I was preaching at Youth Happening many, many years ago. 3,000 young people sharing the gospel right at the point of commitment. Guess what ran down the roof of the main auditorium in Belgrave Heights Convention? Possum. Now, let's, I'm not saying every possum is demon-possessed. <laughs> But I could tell you of times in schools when I've been calling kids to commitment how there have been different things that have come in right at that time which you cannot dismiss as coincidence. You poke the devil in the eye and you are doing that in May. You can expect some form of opposition. He wants to keep people dead for his kingdom is the kingdom of the dead. So how is it that we handle this murder of evangelism? There are many things we could say and time doesn't permit to say them all. But I just want to make you aware of a few things I've been thinking about. I think the first thing is, and this is so basic but it still needs to be said, is that we need to be aware that Our Christian life is spiritual warfare. Now, I'm not a good husband because good husbands play rummikin with their wives and other such frustrating board games. (laughs) And very early in our marriage, I discovered the best things about board games with Pam and I were that they were going to end. (laughs) And um, life is not rummikin or a game of chess or Monopoly where it ends. Every moment of our life we are engaged in spiritual warfare. And um, it may be that uh, you say, well look, that may be true of you, Robert. You've got up and you've preached and you've seen this. But I'm not a preacher. In fact, I'm not even really good up front. I'm terrified about being up front. I'd hate to share the gospel. And just between you and me, Robert, I'm I'm not awfully good at personal evangelism. Um, As a church, you might say, well, we're not overly large compared with the mega church down the road and look at all the things that they're doing and they seem to... I hear constant stories of dozens of people coming to Christ and, and all we are is a community here at Monty trying to live out Christ's life as, a, as godly people, as, as a group, as his church. And to those of you who are introvert in nature, 
and maybe even terrified at the thought of having to share your faith because of your temperament type. It is true that the gospel does need to be spoken and I'll talk about that in a minute. But it is also true that any person who is living their life surrendered to Christ and trusting him are living the gospel. Do you you remember, I, I love that verse, it must be such an encouragement to married couples where only one know the God one knows the Lord, where Peter says to Christian wives, he says this, with their non-Christian husbands, if any of them, that means their non-Christian husbands, do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives. An amazing thing that actually you and I or you as a church, as you live your surrendered lives, that your lives preach the gospel. St Francis of Assisi put it this way, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. I want to show you something um, which is very sad, this which I'm saying, but I... I brought it in and someone said, you're not allowed to bring firearms into church. Um, This isn't a firearm. Um, This actually... (laughs) This actually is my... (laughs) My 8-0-8 golf club. I I haven't played golf for about 20 years and I've just started over the last um, few months. And I must tell you a story. Last Monday... I go out with this guy who's a pastor and we met on the first tee. He'd he'd, he'd had a dreadful weekend. He'd got one of those letters or emails from his parishioners that every pastor would dread. He was a mess and um, he was playing as if he was a mess. (laughs) He's on the first tee and the ball's going this way and that way. And um, I, I just looked... I just have to say this. I was just having one of those days, smashing them down the sand. <laughs> came came to the um, came to the second second hole, and uh, I picked up my my driver, and I've I've never hit a, as good a shot. I was in awe of myself. <laughs> it landed on the green. I could not believe it. But I was trying to be humble at the same time because my poor pastor mate was a mess <laughs> and I'm trying to jolly him along and it was going like this for about five holes. Oh, I was on fire and he was just going awful. Anyway, I picked up my trusty 8-iron. Now, those of you who aren't into golf, um, the 8-iron, 9-iron, the wedges is not for length but it's for getting it up high, right? And so... I've got this sort of tree there and I'm thinking, I could do this. I could do this. <laughs> so I'm going to line the ball up, knock it over this tree and it's going to land on the green. I just knew it was going to happen, right? So I line it up, I come back and I smack it and what I found is that if you don't hit it with this bit here and you hit it with that bit there, it goes like you've hit it with a baseball bat and it goes about two metres off the ground. And I smacked it two metres off the ground and then there, there was this almighty... 
bang as the ball went through the windscreen of the golf cart which we're at there (laughs) (laughs) and worse still I go up to the golf cart and I see the sign for damages on the golf cart windscreen $350 (laughs) the funny thing was from that for the next I don't know a dozen holes I was a mess I couldn't hit the ball anywhere (laughs) the ball's going here there and everywhere because you you must have had this when you've been done being caught for speeding not that anyone here would have been but being caught for speeding you say what could I have done with that $350 I could have done this (laughs) and my mind just melted down my mate started hitting them straight he's trying to jolly me along <laughs> and, and as I was thinking about this I thought it, it not only affected my golf but it, it affected my thinking and affected my demeanour <laughs> and don't you reckon Satan knows that like what's been in your mind this week anxiety dark thoughts impure thoughts frustrating thoughts angry thoughts I bet you that when your thinking has melted down into those kinds of things the thought that this is affecting my demeanour my life has an energy of mine and it takes the edge of your life being a witness true and it's a funny thing if I'm overcome by anxiety over anything ask me how often I'm thinking about people not knowing the Lord doesn't enter my mind and Satan knows that and he I've seen this happen not only with individuals but I've seen it happen in churches where as it were the collective mind of the church has been distracted by A, B, C, D, E, F and G and the life, the cutting edge of that church's life speaking into the community is dulled immeasurably. My friends, we are in a spiritual warfare and we need to keep our lives on the living edge and recognise that our lives speak the gospel. The second thing I want to say is this, we need to recognise that there will be days of specific battle. Now we've got those Ephesians 6 uh, slide, there it is. Um, I I googled this so it must be right (laughs) there were 2,190 days in World War II but on some of those days during the war of course there were battles that raged Uh, the largest of them which they made a black and white movie about many many years ago was the Battle of the Bulge which was in Belgium and Germany and that where there were over 100,000 German casualties and 90,000 Allied casualties and the battle was fierce and unfortunately there were many um, war atrocities committed the battle went for a month and of course when the battle over 
was over, the war wasn't over, the war continued. And those of you who know anything, or uh, historians in terms of war, know there were times of particular battle. In Ephesians 6, notice that it says this, when the day of evil comes. Isn't that an interesting little verse? Um, it is true there is never a day when Satan doesn't want us dead, but there are days when there are specific intense battles that an individual Christian, that an organisation or that a church can face. Um, my personal experience in this over the years um, has been when there have been times whether it's been in the ministry I've been in or in my own personal life or in our family life when I sense opposition my personal experience is that I believe Satan tries to keep us blinded to the fact that there is that battle. Because once you and I know that we're under specific attack, we're halfway there. You know, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee, flee from you, the scripture says. That's where prayer becomes so important in terms of of spiritual opposition. I remember um, not long after we'd started Youth Dimension, we were running a program at one turn, a secondary school. And uh, as was the case on the second day of uh, a week's outreach program in schools, um, I spoke about uh, the danger of seances because at that particular period, I said this last week, there was an incredible interest in spiritism and seances. And um, there were some kids in the class, uh, in the classroom that I was speaking, and they were carrying on like pork chops, if you know how pork chops carry on, and I kicked them out. So they thought that they would be smart. They decided they were going to go to another room and have a seance. So they went to another room and they had this seance. Now I knew nothing about this until I got a, a phone call from the principal um, that night saying, I'm sorry, we're going to have to cancel your program. I said, why? He said, well, some students who were in your program decided they were going to have a seance and they went into a trance and no one knew what to do. In fact, we had to walk them around the oval for over an hour before they even came out of it. And I'm sorry, but we have to close your program down. And I thought to myself, if this got onto television, what would they do with it? What would it do to youth dimension? At the same time, every time I went away from home, one of our kids got sick. They went on for over 12 months. At the same time, our finances in Youth Dimension had reached, had reached critical point to where it was going to threaten our existence. At the same time, I had a lady ring me up from Peel Sea 
and um, she said she wanted to talk to me because I'd spoken about seances. I thought, oh my goodness, what's, what's she going to say? She came and she told me that her and her husband and another couple had been having seances and that in their double story house in the uh, bedroom upstairs where their daughter was, they heard her screaming. They went upstairs and they found her cowering in the corner because she'd seen an old lady's head floating around the room, just telling her what the lady said. And she asked for me, what can I do about this? So all of these things were happening. And I remember Pam saying to me, because I'm a bit thick, (laughs) Pam saying to me, "Um, maybe the devil's having a swing at us here. I thought, yeah, that makes sense. So we simply stood against Satan in prayer. Nothing came of the one turn of situation. That lady never had that situation happen again. Our finances came in and our kids stopped getting sick when I was going away. See, once you perceive, and this applies when you're talking to someone about the Lord and you feel that opposition, it's the same thing. Once you perceive that, hey, this is a battle, this is part, this is, this is a day of evil as it puts in Ephesians that when you take your position in prayer Satan has to run and the third and the last thing I want to say in terms of opposition in evangelism is um, there comes a time when we need to stand in that day of battle Um, I was reading the other day and I'll quote from it, um, a quote about lions. Uh, Lions weigh around 600 pounds. They run at about 20 feet per bound and can do 100 yards in around five seconds. And worse, they are totally unpredictable. But do you know, and I, I never thought of this, but it made sense when I heard it, but do you know what one of their major weapons are? It's their roar because their roar instills absolute terror and fear in the victim. And it is not without significance. I'd never thought of this. It is not without significance when it talks about the devil as a lion. What kind of lion is it described as? It is described as a roaring lion. And isn't it true that Fear paralyses us. Boldness melts like an ice cream in a heat wave within us when we are overcome by fear. And there are moments, and we heard this this morning, there are moments when you and I know this is a moment I need to do or say something. The Holy Spirit is prompting me to do it. And isn't it amazing at such times the excuses that come into your mind? You notice that or is it just me? No, I'll I'll do this at another time. No, they'll be offended. But you know that the Holy Spirit is prompting you to take a stand. And what is significant in this, this passage, and you've had 100 sermons on the spiritual warfare and your armour passage 
is the word stand in there. Put on the full armour of God so that you can stand against the devil's schemes. So when the, the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand against the powers of this world. Stand firm in. See, it's there. Stand. 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 And the word stand there means face to face. You don't blink. You don't turn away. You stand strong in that situation, no matter what the circumstances are. And bouncing through the door, and normally at the most unexpected times, you're sitting in a cafe with a non-Christian friend and all of a sudden it's there. <laughs> that moment and you just know that God wants you to say something and you know what you hear? The roar, don't you? You hear the roar of the devil putting fear in your heart and God wants us to stand. I've seen it with churches. Um, They're at a point where they're feeling they need to take a certain step which is missional, which is going to touch the community. And I've, I've seen the roar of the lion among some of the congregation of fear of what the consequences are going to be. How are we going to pay for this? What are we going to do? Da, 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 da. And it doesn't happen. And the roar of the devil wins because the church hasn't stood for what it believes God is calling it to do. I encourage you as a church, listen to God's spirit like you are already and keep on standing when he prompts you to do that which is missional. But be aware of the roar of the lion in terms of fear. And it may be a... I'm talking to someone here this morning and you are confronted with a situation where you feel God is asking you, in your mind anyway, to take an incredible risk and it's fearful. But God's calling you to do it. Can I encourage you? Stand. Stand. The fear of man brings a sneer, but he who trusts in the Lord is safe. Let me finish with this. I um, I have nights when I don't sleep too well. I think it's part of getting old. Um, And I watched a DVD on uh, about three weeks ago called The Darkest Hours. And after I'd watched this uh, movie... Excellent movie, excellent movie. Um, I felt prompted by God to write what I'm about to read to you. Uh, Britain was on its knees. Over 300,000 British troops were trapped in Dunkirk. America had declined to help the British. The French army was scattered and defeated. And Hitler was marching through Europe taking country after country like a little boy taking lollies from a jar in a lolly shop. And a section of the British government wanted to negotiate peace with Germany and the tyrannical dictator Hitler. 
And if they had, our world would not have been the same as it is today. The UK was on its knees like a prisoner under the guillotine waiting for the dreaded fall of the blade and it needed someone to take a stand. And rising up came a man, Winston Churchill, who single-handedly stirred the government and the British to never give up the fight. And victory was his aim against impossible odds. No one was to know at that time that victory was possible. No one was to know what the outcome would be to stand against Hitler. Churchill, the government of the day, the military leadership, even the people of the UK themselves, no one was to know whether they were going to have victory. And at that dark hour, there was that question mark. But my friend, we know. We know, we know, we know. We know that against an enemy that can raise a legion of demons, against a foe that desires to murder us, against an enemy that can manipulate people and possess the human heart and mobilise it so that people will laugh at us, scorn at us, mistreat us, imprison us, torture us and yet even slay a child of God. We know our enemy is beaten. We know our captain is alive. We know our captain will return and we know he will cast the evil one, Lucifer, and his horde into an eternal hell. We know that. But my friend, they don't know. Humanity wanders around like blind people that have had acid cast into their eyes. Humanity knows nothing but blackness. And the Bible describes the God of this world as the one that blinds the eyes of our non-Christian parent, of the workmate who sits beside us, of our child who sits at the end of the, the table and is resistant to the gospel. The blind, the evil one will blind their eyes so that they are forever separated from God. And finally... And finally, the blind enter eternity. They vanish, falling, sinking, disappearing into a dark black abyss called hell. And do they fall screaming or do they silently drop? Or do they plummet into an unimaginable eternity? I don't know. Is this when their eyes are open? Is this when they think, if only I had, but it's too late? They are forever separated from God who loves them and wants them to see them. And right at this particular point of time, they don't know. And one reason they don't know, even though they had the testimony of creation, even though they had the testimony of conscience, as Romans says, so that they are without excuse, they need more. (laughs) They need us to tell them And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? And who are those that are sent? 
Jesus says to his disciples and every disciple that was to follow from that point in, go and make disciples in all the world which is blind. It's not just to you as an individual, but to us as a church. The church's mission is to tell the blind that which they do not know, that victory has been won and that they can have a living relationship with the Jesus whom we love. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we, we pause before you and when we talk about evangelism and, and when we think of those people who don't know you, within our hearts we, we sense our own inadequacy, we sense our own weakness and frailty and we wish sometimes that we were better than what we are. And yet, Father, all that you call us to this morning is to be surrendered in our life. And if this week you give us an opportunity, oh God, help us to stand. And I pray, Father, for each and every person here and for this dear church, that you would let not only their lives speak, but grant them opportunities to speak into the neighbourhood, into individuals' lives, to those who don't know, to those who are blind. And we thank you, Father, that we serve a living and victorious captain of our army in Jesus Christ. Walk with us this week, I pray, and grant us those opportunities to stand for you. And everybody said, Amen. Thanks so much for having us. Uh